Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender 2018. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. I hope that everyone's year is off to a good start. And here at the Story Blender, we're excited about bringing you another year of stellar storytellers sharing their secrets. And today is no exception, and it's a great way to get rolling in this year. My guest today is Mark Graney. Mark's debut international thriller, The Gray Man, was published in 2009 and became a national bestseller and a highly sought-after Hollywood property. He's written five subsequent Gray Man novels that have been published to date, and the next Agent in Place, book seven in the series, will be published in February. Mark is also the number one New York Times bestselling author or co-author of seven Tom Clancy novels, including his most recent Tom Clancy, True Faith, and Allegiance. He collaborated with Tom on three Jack Ryan novels before Tom's death in 2013. Mark's books are published in several languages and also available as audiobooks. A feature film adaptation of The Gray Man is in development at Sony Pictures. In addition, Mark has a degree in international relations and political science. In his research for The Gray Man and Jack Ryan novels, he has traveled to dozens of countries, visited the Pentagon, military bases, and many Washington, D.C. intelligence agencies, and trained alongside military and law enforcement in the use of firearms, battlefield medicine, and close-range combative tactics. So this is a guy you do not want to get into a fight with. Mark lives in Memphis, Tennessee, with his wife and two dogs. So, Mark, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. No, it's good to talk to you, Stephen. Yeah, when I read through your bio, I always think, it sounds like you've trained to be a special agent yourself (laughs) and not just to write about them. No, it's it's more a case of uh, you know I'm I'm a a very energetic amateur with all these things and a, a little bit of a mascot at some of the shooting schools where I've I've gone a few times because they know I'm an author or whatever and um, I've taken several classes where I was the only civilian everybody else was either military or law enforcement or SWAT or something and um, and you know I, it's always my job to uh, keep my gun pointed in the right direction at all times and then try and do the best I can and then just learn, uh, you know, learn as much as I can and talk to the, to the guys that do that sort of thing for a living. I took a short term, uh, class on, um, hand to hand combat and, and, um, and shooting and so on for authors a couple of years ago. And uh, man, I had a great time. It was so much fun, (laughs) but I realized that guy I was training with, I'm like, this guy could take me out in a second if he wanted to. And, you know, he's teaching you how to knock someone down and take, he's like, Steve, hold this knife. So I hold the knife and two seconds later, he's disarmed me. He's holding the knife. You're not holding the knife. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You meet some interesting people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know your research has really taken you all over the world. I remember at one point uh, a few years ago, uh, I had called you or emailed you to touch base about something, and I think you were on your way to China at the time to do some some research for one of your novels. Tell us a little bit about that, about the um, just the traveling around and trying to get into the mind of an international espionage story. It's fascinating. Uh- I, um, you know, it's it's one of the 
fun perks of the job. It's nobody pays you to do it. You know, people always ask me if my publisher pays for me to travel around the world, and they don't. I am able to write it off on taxes, but uh, unbeknownst to me, when I started, that doesn't mean it's free. That means there's a you know a, a small percentage discount on what you end up right. But yeah, no, I I went to China. I went to Beijing and Hong Kong for uh, a Tom Clancy book I did called um, Threat Vector. And, uh, and I've been to Russia, and I've been to Algeria, and um, all, all through the Baltic, um, Sweden, Central America, stuff like that. It, it helps me a lot with with the writing of the books. Um, a lot of people don't do it, and they write terrific books. And and I can say that there's been times where I've wanted to go to places. I wanted to go to North Korea for a Clancy book I was doing, and. Um, very rightly chickened out. I think my wife was, I was more worried about my wife chopping my head off if I tried it than what happened in North Korea. But um, but but you know, I, I I feel like I did enough research to to make the scenes in North Korea legitimate. Uh, did uh, other places where I've decided not to go. But um, it it helps me every time I'm in one of these places. I there's at least one point where I'm sitting there going, well, this wouldn't have been in the book if I didn't experience this or if I didn't see this or it didn't make me think about it. And, I, and I, that's the reason I keep doing this sort of thing. I am for, for my newest book, Agent in Place, I went to France and for my next Gray Man book, I'll be going to, um, to uh, uh, where am I going? Scotland and the, and the UK. So it's something I like to do a couple times a year for whatever project I'm working on. Yeah. And there really is no, um, um, alternative, I would say, to being on the ground in those places. I mean, you can Google what's it like to live in Beijing or mm-hmm. North Korea or wherever, but but um, but actually getting boots on the ground for yourself, I suppose, is one way to say it. And and looking around, I know for me, uh, I don't have as many international locations in my books, but I was traveling to Kazakhstan doing some teaching a couple of years ago. And someone had mentioned something to me about how extremists from the Middle East were moving over into Kazakhstan to um, to recruit Muslims, young Muslim men, for uh, extremist activities. And, you know, this was kind of when ISIS was at their peak, and um, because of the civil war in Syria, there just wasn't as many um, people to recruit in that. Uh, there weren't as many people to recruit in that area, so they were moving over into yeah. ethnic uh, Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. Anyway, and, mm-hmm. and all of the implications of what that caused, and we actually got pulled over and not arrested, but, but stopped at one street corner, and I said, why are they stopping us? He's like, well, they're really just cracking down on anyone who looks different, and they're trying to stop terrorist activity. So that ended up finding its way into one of my books, too. Because I was I'm sure it did. So <laughs> yeah, and yeah, exactly. Sorry. It's like it's so interesting, and it's not something that most people would know. It's not something you can find out really through a search. You just have to be there, present, looking around. And uh, so I really respect that about your about your stories. Um, I remember when I read. I'm trying to remember which of the Gray Man books. Maybe it was the first or second that I read, and I was a huge huge fan of Ben you know, promoting you to other people ever since reading it. And, um, yeah, I was just impressed with the fast pace. And and um, w- what would you say is sort of one of the secrets for climbing into the mind of, well, tell us a little bit about gr- the gray man, like why he's called that, and maybe what it's like to climb into his mind as you're writing these international thrillers. Um, 
the my lead character, the gray man, is a guy named Court Gentry who, um, at a pretty young age, was uh, pulled into the CIA in a, in a group called the Special Activities Division. He was a member of their ground branch, which is a paramilitary operations arm of the government. And so that's all backstory that all is come and gone before the first Gray Man book. Um, and, and for reasons he doesn't quite understand, the CIA had, has been trying to kill him. So that's that's where the uh, story starts off. He's he's on the run from the agency, but he's working as a sort of contract killer um, in the meantime in the private sector. And so that it created this dynamic where these guys are after him, he's after other people, uh, everything's very gray, uh, it, nothing's total black black and white i'm i've always never really liked black hats and white hats in the story there's every everybody has these you know their sins and every you know the good guys have their sins and the bad guys have their virtues or or something that makes the reader you know understand that the bad guy's doing it for reasons that make sense to him so that's all just a big part of the story and um i over time the 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 story arc in each book. Each book is very much a standalone novel, but there is this story arc that goes beyond uh, the individual novels, and um, and that's been fun to sort of develop as his relationship with CIA has changed, and his relationship with some of the um, the bad guys has changed throughout the years, and you see you see occasional recurring characters and all that. So it all makes it fun. It you know I I just grew up on. Big espionage thrillers, Tom Clancy, of course, Lake R.A., Forsyth, Nelson DeMille, you know, 50 other people. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's all, all I'm doing is trying to, like, execute this genre well and, and in a fresh way. I'm not reinventing the wheel or anything like that, but it's it's fun for me to read it and it's fun for me to write it as well. Well, I think you brought up a really interesting point, and that is this idea of uh, not necessarily – black hats and white hats or guys good guys that are all good or bad guys that are all evil and things like that and and uh, I'm curious when you're developing your villains for your stories uh how do you go about creating ones that are believable that have a touch of some of these virtues we might look up to but are also you know really good <laughs> really good villains for the stories yeah it's different there's different ways for different ones, um, you know, for different bad guys. I'm very much a news junkie and and I read a lot of nonfiction. So I will see things in the the world that make me think, well, that guy would be a great antagonist or this situation is rife to put a bad guy in it and have him take over. You know, I I did research on Bitcoin and then created a kind of a a character who was involved in that. And I've, you know, done things with the Russian mob because I've read books about the Russian mob and and I'll take pieces of this character or pieces of that character and put them together. One of the Gray Man books I did was about the Mexican cartels. And so I created my own cartel that wasn't really one of the main cartels, but I took um, – I called them the uh, the Black Knights, I think, Los Caballeros Negros. And, um, and I put them in an area and then just sort of gave them traits of – the worst of the worst cartels, the Zetas, which were all paramilitary, you know, originally they were former soldiers that became bodyguards that started their own cartel. That's, that's the Zetas. And there's a, a group called La Familia Michoacan that's down there, um, kind of near Guadalajara, I think. And they uh, they were very sort of a religious-based cult, kind of a strange hmm. 
thing, and there's another one called the Knights Templar, and there's and and so I, I sort of melded those together to create this like super bad cartel, gave them a different name, and then gave their le- leader a lot of those sort of like obsessed with this kind of this weird religious thing and the former special forces guy. So it all just sort of came organically from reading and research that I've done. And, you know, I was thinking about it the other day and just my book that comes out next month will be my 16th book uh, in total, um, yeah. not 16th great man, seventh great man, but 16th book that I've written. And I'm thinking, you know, how many bad guys have I come up with in 16 books? You know, there's, <laughs> there's several in each book. So I've had to get in the head of, of a lot of really horrible people in these, in these stories over the past 10 years. Does it ever bother you doing that? I, I know some people ask me the same question, you know, because I have different villains in my novels and some are um, killers and some are terrorists and all this. And, and people will say, does it ever and in a couple of cases, it has gotten into my head. Most of the time, I'm able to separate myself. But there were two books in particular where it really did start to bother me. It almost made me depressed just seeing the world through the eyes of this person who was so cold-hearted. I don't know. What's it That's like interesting. for you? Well, I, I have to ask you. I'm going to turn it around. Uh, were they like serial killers, or were they? Was it a political? Were they politically bad, or, or what was it about them that really? was so disheartening because I, I haven't run into that, but I, I can expect that if I wrote a different type of story. Yeah, let's see. The The first one really was a, a serial killer, and there comes mm-hmm. this point toward the end of the book where my main character, Patrick Bowers, ends up confronting him. And he says, well, why are you doing this? And the guy just says, it's interesting to watch people die. And for him, it's not about watching him suffer, and he's not sadistic. He could just as soon hand you a toothbrush as slit your throat, and it wouldn't make any difference to him. He just thought it was more interesting to watch you suffer and die. And just looking at the world through that character's eyes, it troubled me. So I'm like, man, there really are people like that. I I think that would be tough to get deep into that sort of thing. You know, you watch, you read about true crime stuff, or you watch... uh, True Crime, there's a show on CNN uh, called Forensic Files, a little half-hour show about uh-huh. murders and how they were solved, and it's on all day long. And some, sometimes I'm in my gym here at my house working out, and I'll just have that on while I'm working out. And so I've seen it. Uh, you know, I, I made a joke one time. I was like, pretty soon we're all going to be victims on Forensic Files. It's like at this point I think everyone <laughs> in America has been murdered by a serial killer because it's just all day long, and it's just it's just – horrific um yeah. so you know the truth is stranger than fiction i get people asking me sometimes uh you know do i ever worry that uh, you know bad people will read my book and get ideas and oh yeah um, that's that's you know it, it's a it's a reasonable question but what i you know i do a ton of research on this stuff in the nonfiction world and what i and what i tell them i'm like i'm a guy at starbucks with a muffin in one hand and a coffee in the other hand typing out this story for a few hours before I go back to, you know, my middle-class existence and my happy life. Meanwhile, the people that want to do harm to America or or whoever the bad guy is, they're in a cave somewhere living on, you know, a scoop of rice, and all they're doing all day long is, you know, building bombs and planning, you know, the next attack and this sort of thing. And it would be the height of conceit for me to think that I'm working harder at this than they are, and they're going to get some idea from me. It's a little bit our job as as 
artists or, or, or writers to think of these things creatively to yeah. sort of show the world what's out there in, in a in a fiction way and in, in sort of like a, a, a way that we can stomach as opposed to, to reading about the, the horrible things that have already happened. I remember I was working on my book called The Queen, and there um, there's a scene where someone has to remotely fire a nuclear weapon from a U.S. submarine. And um, so you need to hack into a U.S. nuclear submarine for this one scene. And I was doing research in, at an um, U.S. Air Force base in Texas, and uh, this guy was giving me a tour. He was one of the colonels there. And I said, how could you remotely access a U.S. submarine in order to – I said, this is an important part of my story. And he goes, oh, it's easy. And he told me how to do it. <laughs> and I'm like yeah, – it- it shouldn't be easy, and I'm like, I'm using that because I want people out there who are in the military or other areas to say, well, why couldn't someone just do that? And then stop it. I mean, yeah, exactly. You're shining a light on things sometimes. And um, the the last Tom Clancy book I wrote was called True Faith and Allegiance, and it was about um, a, a computer hack that exposed a lot of the, uh, the military and intelligence services um, to the to our enemies and it showed about how these very innocuous pieces of information that they were able to hack could be coupled with social media and, and they could figure out where a person was at a particular time. You know, this general where, where he jogs because, you know, you can find it through different social media or, or that sort of thing. And so to me, it was, it was stuff that was already going on, but I wanted to just sort of like put a big, you know, Sharpie front line under it and highlight it and sort of show it to people and say, you know, this is really sort of a, a – we're dangerously exposed in this way. And so it's, you know, it's, these books are to entertain, full stop, nothing else. But at the right. same time, you want to um, you want to show people something that is interesting and, and relevant as well. Now, I know you've done research on cyber warfare for your books and even what you just mentioned. And I think it's totally important for us to be able to tell those stories to expose those weaknesses not necessarily for terrorists, but it's important for people to know where we are vulnerable and where they're vulnerable, and and so I I think that's a I think that's cool, and and I love reading stories where it feels like I read it and, and I'm scratching my head saying how much of this is fact and how much of this is fiction, how much of this is actually going on out there. I I, I feel like like one of my parts of my job is to read the thousands of pages of really boring government things or technical manuals or stuff like that and to pull out the cool, interesting stuff and to put yeah. it together in a way that's that's more palatable. You know, it's kind of – it's it's work sometimes, and you've probably done the same thing where you, do, you read this whole book for research, and at the end you want to put something in the book because you did all the work, but it does – you know, the book doesn't need it or <laughs> but it you didn't really find what you're looking for. Yeah, so um, – you know, I, I think a lot of the things that I talk about in my books, you know, they're made in an, in an exciting way, hopefully, um, but they're they're taken out of some boring manual I read or some interview I did with somebody that, uh, you know, other people wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to do. So it's it's just kind of shining a light on those things that are they're already out there. Well, you're known for um, the action and the espionage and the twists and, and all this kind of stuff. What would you say is the secret to either writing a great chase scene or a great fight scene? Um, I know a lot of people who want to you know, write thrillers or whatever, they come to these 
parts, and, and maybe those are the areas where it's easy to struggle with. What, what do you find is helpful for you to keep in mind as you work on chase and fight it, scenes? I think um, the, the most important thing is to always be thinking about the reader's experience in, in, in uh-huh. writing the story. So I see it so many times where I don't even believe the, the writer understands the mechanics of this chase around this thing or whatever. It's like, wait, no, he was in my head. That's totally mixed up, you know, this or that. So yeah. it, it's not just telling a story. Um, and, and I think sort of less experienced writers run into they're completely focused on telling their story. It's so much how you tell it and um, when the reader gets this piece of information or how clear you make this piece of information to the reader. Um, anything that takes the reader out of the story and has them going, wait, what? You know, and, and looking back a sentence or reading something again to see if they understood or to just sort of, you know, we've all had it where we're reading a book and there might be this intricate kinetic action scene, but it's just, confusing and you're and you're you're as a reader you just kind of pull pull back mentally a little bit and kind of skim on through to the end just to see who won or whatever and uh you yeah. know just to me it's you know those the movie fight scenes which have gotten have gone from you know really clever action scenes to where a lot of fight scenes now are just these absurd quick cut you know, shaky cam, jerky cam, um, silliness where you just see a fist and hear cracks and people flying and you don't have any idea of the mechanics of the story. So I I always make sure that if I start to get confused with what I'm saying, I stop, back up, start over, figure out, you know, where I went wrong and, and, and stay that way. But it's, but it's just, it's just being very, um, empathetic and, and realizing like, okay, the reader doesn't know what you're saying. The reader doesn't know anything about this book other than what you tell them. So there's, as a writer, and I'm sure you've run into this before, you start to see on the page what you think you wrote <laughs> or, or how you see the story. Oh, yeah. And, yeah and then if you go back and, you, and if you're able to look at it with a critical eye and say, well, wait, I'm not saying what I think I'm saying there. And, you know, we've all done it. We, you know, anybody who's published books, you'll get something all the way to publication and then, you know, it's pointed out to you in something and you're like, I literally looked at that 15 times or 15 <laughs> times and, and couldn't see it and wouldn't see it over another hundred times. It's just, uh, it's just part of, you know, you just have to be as empathetic as you possibly can and, and just realize that, you know, it's your job to keep the reader involved in the story and, and turning the pages. Man, I I totally agree. And I like what you said about anything that, you know, draws a reader out of the story is something we want to avoid and and um and you listed some ideas and some things that do that and some are gaps in logic you know where readers mm-hmm. say what that i don't really follow yeah. that doesn't make yeah. sense and why did he do that why did you know in the horror movie why did why did the bad guy you know why did the good guy like walk down <laughs> into the dark basement without a flashlight you know when, when they know there's a killer in the house you know that sort of thing yeah, and and um, I mean, in certain genres, I guess we expect that maybe in a horror movie, it's just kind of it's so often used that we maybe accept it more. But but especially in stories where you know your, your stories are read by a lot of people in the military, law enforcement, mm-hmm. they're not going to put up with that. They're going to read no, it yeah, and be no. like, and believe yeah. me, you hear about it, even if it's just a difference of opinion. <laughs> so those things happen. I'm writing a, a military novel right now, writing it with uh, an active duty uh, Marine lieutenant colonel. And um, and we literally look at every scene as if it was a real military operation being 
performed. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean at the end people aren't going to, you know, have ways they want to ding it or whatever. But it, it's to me, it, we're not just looking at this as a story to put on a page. We're sort of like, uh, you know, at least in, in my co-author's standpoint, you know, I feel like he could go out and execute this thing that we're working on the next day. Right. But it does, you know, it, it just adds to the verisimilitude of the story. And um, as long as you don't get so lost in the weeds, right, you know, and, and um, yeah. you, 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 don't, you don't fall in love with your own technology and your own details and, and keep it relevant to the story, then it should be, uh, you know, it should be a benefit to the reader. I think something else that you said, which I found interesting just a minute ago, is you were talking about fight scenes, and you said, you know, sometimes people just skim over it if they can't picture it. And I know I've read Mm -hmm. some scenes where someone will be like, he drew his left hand back, and he hit the other guy in the right side of his jaw, and then he spun around and gave him a sidekick to the right rib or something like that. And Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there trying to figure out, what? And, And all of that detail that the author thought was being used to help picture the scene ended up distracting me where mm-hmm. I couldn't really yeah. picture it at the end. And I found myself instead of being present in the scene and really just in the middle of the action, I was, I did that. I took a step back and I was analyzing Well, could he really swing his left hand and hit the guy yeah. exactly like that from a meter yeah. away or wherever, you know, whatever it is. So I think that it, you know, I've told people in my seminar sometimes the more you describe a character, the less we can see him. And people say, what? I mean, yeah. like you could spend, you know, a paragraph describing someone's face and it might not be as effective as saying, you know, he was a short, stout bulldog of a man. And then we can yeah, and let people create like, their own yeah, sort of impression of it. Picture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like to do as well. I remember if you read all the Ian Fleming novels, he would always describe James Bond as having a cruel mouth. And I don't know. I have no idea what a cruel mouth looks like. And, and, and in, in every in every Ian Fleming book, it just says, you know, he he had an especially cruel mouth. And I just that would take me out of the story a little bit as I was like, yeah, kind of, you know, make make faces in the mirror to see what what it looks like to have a cruel mouth. I mean, to some people that might totally mean something, but to me it didn't. And it was it's just an right. example of something like that was that was a very specific detail that was supposed to you know invoke something in me, but it but it just didn't just ended up confusing you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, in an espionage story or a military thriller, there's often a secret hidden within a secret. Things aren't, aren't what they appear to be on the surface. And I'm wondering, when you start your books, how deep into those layers do you dig before you actually start writing? And how many surprises do you find along the way? I try to, I try to get it as right as possible before I start and then end up just tossing it and going in a lot of different directions. Um, I write, uh, I write a pretty good synopsis for my books. I know some people just, you know, just start on page one and just bang through. I, I spend, a, I spend a good amount of time, like I'm working on one book now and then thinking about my next book and writing up a synopsis here and there. So it gives me plenty of time to sort of like, you know, in those moments where I'm not thinking on the book I'm, I'm working on, I'm thinking about the book that's coming up next. And yeah. so I do come up with a whole lot of it, but um, once I get in there and I start writing, and you end up doing more research while you're working on the book. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I know there's some some authors that do all their research and then they just basically type up the book, and that's that's really awesome. I wish my brain worked that way, and I'm very jealous because that just seems like <laughs> they probably they probably have a more orderly brain than I do. 
for me, it's just like scrambling to get the research done as I'm writing the story. And, and I, you learn so many things and you get so many new ideas and you change so many things. Um, twists and turns are, I mean, I literally will just throw myself face down on my couch in my office just in frustration trying to figure out how the good guy is going to get away from the bad guy here or, or, you know, why this connection is made to that. And, um, and I do that before I'm writing, but usually – I don't have I don't have to get it 100. percent You can you can yeah. really freeze yourself into doing nothing if you panic too much about those things. You you kind of just trust that the answers will come. And sometimes at the end of the day, the answer you got ended up not being as cool as you know your fantasy of how good it was going to be. I always say that like the book I'm working on now is a hard slag, but my next book is going to be this amazing thing. You know, this, this <laughs> incredible experience to write. It's going to be this transcendent novel. And, and you know, what it is is like before you write the first word, that book is just perfect in your head. And then you're just limited <laughs> by your own abilities as you get it done. So it's all about, you know, figuring out as many twists and turns as you can to where, you know, you can start and, and you have some sort of a template or direction and then just working it, working it out as you go. I mean, I find a, a similar thing true in my writing that things don't go where I anticipate when I start. And in fact, I'm probably a lot more organic in the way that I write than you are. I don't have, I have a premise uh, and I have mm-hmm. questions to address as I write, but I don't have such a detailed synopsis written up. And in some mm-hmm. cases, it's frustrating for my agent because he's trying to, you know, sell the books or pitch the books, and I'll give him like three pages. Like, yeah, hey, Steve, you need to do like more detail. I'm like, but I don't really know. How could I know until I've written it? You know, and yeah, and yeah. so, um, so we always go back. He's like, I know you don't outline, but what more can you give me to, you know, to, to try and show an editor that this is an interesting book and. And so, uh, yeah, it's, so, yeah, yeah the, the, known, the editors want, editors want to know what you're doing. If you're going to come a, if they're going to give you an advance and, and B, if they're, you know, they put you in their schedule to publish a book at some point. Um, I think, I don't know that that ever changes. I went and saw Stephen Hunter at, do a uh, talk a few years ago. Um, you know, he wrote, you know, he's a very famous, uh, novelist and, critic for the Washington Post, a great guy. It was interesting to watch him talk. And I remember him thinking or him saying that like he has this idea and then he pitched it to his editor and his editor like shot it down. I was like, wait, <laughs> an editor can shoot Stephen Hunter down? And this, at right. this point I'd only had like one book out or whatever. And I was like, I thought I was just a couple, you know, a couple books away from calling all my own shots. But, you know, the editors, they they know what uh, people want to read and they know what sells. And, and so you, you do have to listen to them and, and work with them. Yeah, I, um, you know, my books always end up with twists that, I never never saw coming, and I've mm-hmm. never ended one where I thought it would would end when I started. And so, mm-hmm. I find that I spend the time writing up synopsis, but then I get into the story, as you were saying, and all of a sudden, new ideas reveal themselves. Yeah. And I always find that it's hard to, uh, well, I should say it's hard to deny those when I'm writing because usually they're more spot on than what I was thinking of before I ever sure, started. Yeah. Yeah, you have the benefit of your research and everything else that steers mm-hmm. you there. Yeah, and the context, you know, for that part of the story, you know, beforehand, you might not have known there was such a big build-up to, let's just say, the bomb that was underneath mm-hmm. the federal building or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But when you've worked on the book for three or six months or something, you realize, man, I really built up that storyline, and I had no idea it was going to be that big of a deal. But I've got to deal with yeah. that. 
Yeah, yeah. Things that you think are going to be big aspects of your story end up being sort of little side items, and 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 the inverse is true as well. You, there's things that that turn into something a lot bigger than you thought they were going to be. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. Now, I was interested uh, as an accomplished author for you. What types of stories draw you in the most? I know people often say that we should write in the genres that we like to read. Um, do you do you find that's true? You mentioned earlier that you you know you grew up on espionage stories. Is it still the case? Are you still able to get it to read as much as you'd like? Uh, I don't get to read fiction as much as I'd like. Um, I'm asked to write blurbs for a lot of new authors a lot, which is awesome, which is really, really cool. But it also means that, you know, your free time, you don't, you know, you're, um, I'm a huge fan of, of Jason Matthews, who wrote uh, Red Sparrow, which there actually is a movie coming out next month from that. But it's a trilogy, and I'm two books behind in this trilogy, and the first book was one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. And, I, you wow. know, it's, it's, it's very frustrating to me that, like, you know, with everything else going on, I haven't picked up Jason Matthews' second book. It's sitting right in front of me. I can see it right now. But uh, I've had it for a year and a half, and his, and his third one's coming out soon, and the movie's coming out. But um, so, so I don't do as much as I want. I don't know if I would recommend to people to to read exclusively in your genre or almost exclusively in your genre, but it's basically yeah. what I did I, um, because that interested me. But on the other hand, I remember I read the complete works of William Shakespeare when I was in my 20s. I, I wrote, I read like a thousand-page book of short stories, and I read some mm. science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke, stuff like that. So I did read different stuff. I got more focused on espionage um, as time went on and, and, and military, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, so I was, uh, you know, I was a little more of a generalist when I was really young and developing. But, uh, you know, to me, I could, I, I'll see a movie about any subject and, um, and it'll be something in a completely different genre, horror or, or whatever, and think, wow, this is so good. Um, it's probably not what I would write because it's kind of not where my brain resides. But yeah. um, you can still, as a writer, you can still pick up things from different types of stories and different types of storytelling. So it's, you know, it's good to expand your mind as much as possible. Yeah, I tend to read um, books that are recommended to me, and I also do have people, as you said, who will request blurbs, and so I find that mm-hmm. I'm reading some of those. But but uh, I love reading a wide variety of things. Like I write yeah. thrillers uh, and suspense, but, man, I read some literary books, some books of psychology, some poetry, some, I mean, just a wide variety of nonfiction and, as well as, you know, action stories. And I just find that for me, um, what matters most is it's told well. If it's told well mm-hmm. and I, I lose myself in the story, I really don't care what genre people call it or yeah. if they deride yeah. that genre or not. Yeah, I think um, that can only yeah. help you as a writer, though, you know, just a, the, the, a widening of your experience. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. And, um, you, know, you know, when I was saying that a minute ago, it made me think of, like, action thrillers. Some people would sort of deride as being, quote, genre fiction. I've had people mm-hmm. say that, oh, he just wrote, this, this book's just genre fiction, which is basically their way of sort of looking down on it and judging oh, it. Yeah, sure. Even though that's yeah. mainly what they watch on television and in the movie theaters is, yeah. is genre fiction. How do you how do you bring depth to your characters to rise above sort of um, some of those um, perceptions that people might have about military and espionage stories? Um, I guess I don't look at I don't look at it. I look at the characters as as human beings. Um, 
I remember Tom Clancy in his early novels was knocked some for uh, making his military characters a little too cookie cutter. And I, and I have recently reread like Red Storm Rising and some other old Clancy books. And I totally disagree with, with that. I thought, I think he had a good, you know, sense of like family and the, you know, where that fit in the story. Sometimes, you know, it's a big book and it's, it's going fast in a lot of different directions. You're not going to dig into each character. Um, But I, I think, you know, if you, really try to figure out why this character is doing what he's doing, if he's a good guy or he's a bad guy, um, then that sort of gets to the truth of, of who they are. I don't want to sound too navel-gazing because that's not how I think and how I write, but but just to try to explain, you know, what's going on in my head, um, you know, I I don't want to just, you know, have some in a military novel, I don't want to just have someone whose job it is to fly the plane. You know, there has to be more to the person than that. And I'm I'm writing a military novel right now, as I said, a big monster of a book. And um, there's dozens and dozens of characters in it. And every one of them, there's a, you know, a, a, a girl in the Polish militia and it's about her, you know, has enough of her background to where you care about her. And, um, there's a French special forces guy and you've got enough of his background, his relationship with his father to where that makes him interesting. And, and, you know, you can't build these, uh, histories of every character that walks across the stage in your novel, but the characters that you want your, your, um, your readers to care about, you, you just develop them. So I, I, I don't develop them necessarily like, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's diehard and, you know, the bad yeah. guys have German accents and that's what makes them bad and we cool guns. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's another level. I mean, obviously that's a movie and a screenplay, which is a, you know, a small fraction of a novel. So I'm not, I'm not knocking that. It's fantastic. But, you know, it's, that's thin compared to what, you know, the opportunity you have in a book to tell a story. So, um, you know, I, I don't think of it as genre fiction as I'm writing it. There's there's obviously tenets to the genre that you have to, you know, accept and, and deal with. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I, look at the, I look at the story as being sort of a fully formed story that is uh, that is over a plot, which is pretty much genre fiction, I guess. Well, you know, yeah, it's it's interesting because it almost always when people use that term, it's with the nose in the air, kind of like looking down at that type of story, which I completely disagree with. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's it maybe. Um, I just think the whole goal is really what you said earlier, and that is to keep your reader uh, at. Uh, to keep your reader's experience with the story as paramount. And it's all about serving the reader and giving them what they come to that story for. And, you know, with your stories, it's action and it's, you know, it's it's um, adrenaline. And it, it's not just sitting around, you know, chatting in the, in the office or something like that. And so I like what you said about your characters trying to make each one count with their backstory, maybe their motivation, the wounds that they have maybe from the past and all of those, I think deep in the characters that we read about in your stories. Yeah. That's kind of what, what, what you hope to do. So I'm, I'm glad that, yeah. that shines through here and there. So tell me a little bit about your new book coming out here uh, at the beginning of 2018. I'd love to hear any insights about it, but without giving of course any key plot points away. Sure. You know, this is funny because this is the first time I'm talking about this. That, you know, the book doesn't come out for six weeks. and So somebody's always got to be the first, you know, interview you do before you end up doing dozens and dozens of them. So, 
uh, about 20, 20 minutes before this interview, I was thinking, oh, crap, do I even remember what this book is about? Because, I'm, <laughs> you know, I wrote it last year and I've, I've done a whole other one. So that, that happens to me every year when I'm like, all right, don't start telling your plot for your next Gray Man book or don't, you know, don't go back too far in time or tell one of your Clancy books. But, no, this is um, Agent in Place. It's book seven of the Gray Man series. And so it uh, – it starts with the hero, Court Gentry, in Paris, and he has taken a job to um, kidnap slash rescue a woman who is the um, the mistress. Uh, it's, it's secret, but um, some people have found out that she is actually the she's a, a Spanish model um, at fashion, you know, appearing at Fashion Week in Paris. But she is also the mistress of a guy named Ahmed Azam, who is uh kind of he's the president of Syria so he's like Bashar Assad the the current you know real world president of Syria uh-huh. it's kind of a, a a play on uh Bashar Assad and his wife Asma Assad um in Syria we had the the bad guys in this book are the husband and wife the Syrian leader and first lady but anyway um the gray man goes to kidnap this woman because she has some information which some uh kind of rebel groups think will cause the Syrian regime to fall. And, um, and, and court wants to help out with that. He's, he's working back with the CIA in a contract basis, but this book, uh, he's also sort of retained the right to do sort of righteous missions that he, he wants to do. And so he's, he's gotten this private sector operation to kidnap this woman. He kidnaps her. And then, uh, without giving away any spoilers, learns more about her backstory, more about what she knows and it becomes evident pretty quickly that um, he has to go to Syria, and which is the last place in the world he wants to go. As I guess everybody knows, there's a civil war there with, you know, sort of like 23 different factions fighting each other, and it's uh, probably the worst place on earth right now. But he decides he has to go there um, to, to to make this all work out. The uh, there's a uh, a lot of other antagonists in the story. There's a Swiss. Um, intelligence agent who's working for the Syrians in Europe. There's um, Syrian uh, paramilitaries who are up there trying to uh, stop the bad guy, you know, stop the good guys. And then there's uh, there's corrupt French police. And then gets down into Syria, and there's um, kind of units of uh, different militia groups that work both for and against the Syrians who are involved. So it's it's a big sweeping story, 500 something pages, 170 thousand words. That, that involves this sort of um, epic movement from the of the gray man as he as he uncovers that you know peels off the onion of, of what's actually going on in Syria and goes in there to try to uh, affect an outcome. I love the international feel. Like you're just rattling them off. Well, there's a Syrian you know agency, and then there's a Swiss you know intelligence person, and um, man, I I love. I love the intricacy of those stories, and uh, and what? I always like reading stories that feel big, that feel like a big story being told, and not so much of a small, limited kind of a thing. Yeah, I think you know, I I wrote seven, I wrote three books with Tom Clancy before he died, and four after he died, and there's no way that's not going to affect your storytelling. And my stories yeah. um, have gotten. Uh, you know, the first couple of Gray Man books are a little bit more. You're over the shoulder of the Gray Man as he's walking through the street doing what he does. Now they they there's a 
a few more moving parts. You know, everything's still really fast paced and it's, it's super important to me that all the pieces come together and this isn't some sort of um, really complex thing that has to be, you know, unwound. It's more, you're there with the hero as he's, as he's, as I said, peeling, peeling back the layers and figuring out how deep this goes and how much danger is involved. And, um, you know, it's, it's all, it's all an action story, but it's on the back, backdrop of a big uh, international thriller. That sounds great. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it and when it when it um, comes out. Um, when I was introducing you to, uh, when I was reading your bio, it mentioned um, some film work that might be coming out with one of your with one of your stories. Uh, is that anything you can chat with us about, or is that kind of just? in production and not really you're able to um, bring it up. Yeah, I can, I can talk about it. Um, Sony Pictures owns the rights to the gray man. Um, it was, it was held by another studio for a few years and then they weren't able to make it. So the rights came back to me and then Sony picked them. Uh, or it, I gave Sony the option. And um, last year they, they went ahead and purchased the, the book. So they, have the rights to do it. Um, I've had a conference call with the director that I think might be involved. I don't think I can say who it is. And um, at this at this point, it's you know it's listed as in production, but I know that they're they're energized to make it because they've bought it. <laughs> you know they they own it. It's not something that they're renting. Um, so hopefully, it's something that that will be made. There were as, as in this saga, you know, I've been dealing with this Hollywood side of things for. Um, coming up on eight years now, because from when the first one sold, um, I, there's been several screenplays. One was written by this guy, Adam Kozad, who has written a lot of great screenplays, and it was fantastic. And then uh, the Russo brothers were slated to direct it when it first went to Sony, um, and they, they directed the Captain America films, last couple Captain mm-hmm. America films and uh, Avengers um, and and so they had me out in California, and we worked on the script for a while. And then Joe Russo wrote a fantastic script for that. And then um, the studio went in another direction for a while, and they were going to change the lead character from a male to a female, so they needed a, a different <laughs> script for that. So they, they wrote another uh, – uh, uh, two other screenwriters wrote another script that was a really great script as well that had nothing to do with the book that I wrote. But, you know, I was like, hey, I'd, I'd pay to go see this movie like anybody else. Um, but then, from what I understand, now Sony is back to, um, you know, the idea of a, of a male lead and being a little bit more – um, you know, authentic to, to the story itself. So, you know, I'm just like anybody else. You know, I'd, I'd like it to happen, and I'm just sitting around to see see what they do with it. Yes, um, uh, some people say Hollywood is the only place you can die from encouragement. I, you'll bring up something <laughs> to Hollywood, and they'll be like, "This is amazing. This is great. We're going to do it." And you wait, you wait, and then you don't hear anything, or you do hear something, but it's six months later, and. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, well, movies I've cost had, movies cost a whole lot of money to make, so yeah. there has to be a lot of people involved, and you know, there's a, a certain number of things. So it's a especially uh, yeah, your a, genre. It's a story. tough business. Yeah, yeah. Now I noticed that there's a Jack Ryan um, television series coming out on um, on Amazon this year. Did you have anything to do with with that process, or has that just been? Sort of. No, nothing, nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested in it, and I, I really like John Krasinski. He was fantastic in this movie called 13 Hours, and um, and I think 
he can do a great job as, as Jack Ryan. I never would have thought it before I saw 13 hours. Um, I just thought of him as Jim from the office, but he's, he's a really, really good actor. And, um, and I, you know, I'm going to be there watching it when it comes out, just like anybody else, but I didn't have any, the, the books that I've done. Um, I think what the, the movie, I mean, what the TV show is doing is rebooting, Jack Ryan Sr. As a, as a younger man, you know, in a, in a contemporary day, which is a good idea. Um, yeah. The books have Jack Ryan Sr. as the president of the United States and his son, Jack Ryan Jr., working for this group called The Campus, which is a sort of off-the-books intelligence agency. So the books are a, kind of a different story in a different, you know, kind of parallel universe from, from I think, what Amazon is going to do. But I think there's room for both of them because he's an iconic character. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to your enjoyed kind it. of insights about writing and also just about the new book coming up. And and um, when people are when people are looking for this new book of yours or even any of your projects, what's the best uh, what's the best place to look? Is it to your website or go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or IndieBound or where would you where would you direct people mainly? Um, I would direct you to my website, and from there you can see all the links to where you can get the book close to you. Or uh, also has information on my. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a book tour in February, starting February 20th in San Diego, and kind of going all over the country. Uh, I think there's 12 or 13 different places. Um, and my website is Mark Graney, G-R-E-A-N-E-Y Books dot com, and um, I'm also on Facebook, um, author Mark Graney, and Instagram and Twitter and all those sorts of things. That's part of being a writer these days. So um, I'm pretty easy to find. I should be. No, that sounds great. And, um, of course, we want people to look you up online and go to the signings that you're doing coming up in um, in February as the book releases. So I encourage all of everybody who's listening to go out and check out the book. And um, if you're interested about my stories and my books, you can go to stephenjames.net. And for more information about our guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. I want to thank everyone for listening, and especially thank you, Mark, for joining us. And everyone, always remember, the art of the story is always in the blend. We'll see you next time.